the theme for the afternoon uh, teachings with you is embracing our suffering. And I'd like to uh, touch upon uh, a little bit uh, uh, the uh, tragic events for a couple of minutes of uh, September 11th uh, uh, last year as a way of uh, flowing into the uh, 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 teachings. Um, on that particular day, and I'm sure each and every one of us will uh, remember for the rest of our lives, I was uh, on a flight to San Francisco, to Spirit uh, Rock. We were five hours into the flight from uh, London Heathrow, and we were told by the pilot that there had been terrorist attacks. We had just uh, entered U.S. airspace, so our airplane uh, turned around along with uh, many, many others. There are more than uh, 60 or 70 planes going out of London Heathrow to the U.S. every day and turned back uh, to Heathrow. About two weeks later, a New York and uh, U.K. publisher asked me to write a book on a spiritual approach to terror in the variety of ways and forms that it expresses itself. And one of my concerns at that time, and it's an ongoing concern, and upon coming here uh, on this visit, made a quiet resolve to uh, mention to you. Um, I believe it's extraordinarily hard in this country for U.S. citizens to have any kind of genuinely balanced view about world events. Not only do I think it's difficult, I think it is nigh on impossible. And the reason for this is that in the, in the world of information and language and what you and I are exposed to day in and day out, we tend to get an extraordinarily one-sided view. It's not that it's propaganda, it's not that it's deliberately intentional, but the wealth of information comes from a particular position and it doesn't allow for a total perception. And when I wrote this book, I, if I may say, had a very direct experience uh, uh, of this um, of what I mean. And I'll, if I'm, I've, I've got a, a copy uh, here, I just want to read out a quote to you, and then I want to tell you the struggle that I had with the US uh, publishers, which uh, went on for weeks and weeks. And you might be rather alarmed by it. I was alarmed and, and uh, uh, shocked. But l let me just uh, uh, read to you uh, one of the points that the struggle was over. And this, is, and this very much relates to the theme of the aft, uh, afternoon and what a liberated uh, uh, viewpoint. I begin with stories of the firemen. And then, it, and then I read, wrote, In New York, the parents of Greg Rodigrew, one of the young men who died in the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, said, We read enough of the news to sense that our government is heading in the direction of violent revenge 
with the prospect of sons, daughters, parents and friends in distant lands dying, suffering and nursing further grievances against us. It is not the way to go, not in our son's name. The Rodrigo family express one of the most profound of human feelings, namely empathy. They have realized that their sorrow and the sorrow of others are no different. That undertaking allowed Greg's parents to express to journalists, family members and friends their concerns for others in another part of the world. I then followed it up, next sentence, with the story of the Ahmed family. The family of Gul Ahmed, husband, wife and seven young children, lived together in a suburb of Kabul, mostly unaware of the terror around them. The children played with each other, laughing and teasing, as children love to do. Then the bombs came. Ahmed's wife survived the bomb attack, but her husband and all seven children died. Why are they not taking decisions to stop this? The sorrowing mother asked a reporter. Why are they doing this to us? What have we done to deserve this? So I think you appreciate the sentiments and the feelings of both the Rodrigo family and Mrs. Ahmed in northern Kabul were very much similar. When I gave the manuscript to the publisher in UK and uh, New York and many other aspects, I put a very strong emphasis on what spiritual teachings and practices are all about. And teachings and practices are not concerned, obviously, with ideology. I'm sure many of you agree. They are concerned with suffering. They are concerned with the interconnectedness that women, men and children around this world have together. They are concerned with love and compassion without any discrimination whatsoever. Spirituality only has meaning through interconnectedness, through awareness, through love and through compassion. The New York publisher wanted and insisted that the Rodigru family story stayed and the Ahmed story was deleted. It was not the only example. They said the manuscript was anti-American. I said, spirituality and liberation always refers and speaks from a non-dual position, meaning no bias, no taking sides. It is up to the editor in New York, editors in New York and in London, to look through this manuscript extremely carefully. If there is bias, if there is prejudice, I will rewrite, I will take it out, because it will completely de defeat what I am endeavouring to do. They could not find it. This struggle went on with the publishers through numerous emails and phone calls for more than two months. And I said, I'll have no, in, no credibility left. In the Middle East, I'm in Israel three times this year. I do facilitation work with the Palestinians. Uh, I go to India in the, in the villages, etc. I will have no credibility left if transforming our terror, which is the title of the book, only refers to American terror and doesn't refer to terror around the west of the world. Do you know what they said? We're not planning to publish the book in Arabic or Hebrew. 
they said, Americans are not ready for this, to read this kind of book. Which is true. It got so much, I had a meeting with the owner of the publisher at Paddington Railway Station, and I said, now, I said, I'm fed up going backwards and forwards on resolving this with you. I'm giving you an ultimatum. You take the whole lot, you do not put your dirty fingerprints on it. Or I withdraw and I take the manuscript back and you can take me to the courts with a contract, which was peanuts, $6,000 anyway. And so it went three days, four days went by until they credit me. Uncensored. No, 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 no. Well, for the publisher. <laughs> and I use it as a small example of some kind of belief that can go on of people of power, corporate world in this case, or governments, who think they know best what people can accept, what people can read. And with that goes some kind of modus operandi in which people end up with a particular view and, and are unable to look and see for ourselves from a spiritual kind of standpoint, which cannot take sides. It's concerned with suffering. It's concerned with causes and conditions for suffering. It's concerned with how can we engage, as a strong theme of the book goes, with constructive engagement rather than destructive engagement. This is called spiritual. This is, this is called embracing of suffering. This is called expanding our consciousness so that we're not defining ourselves as UK citizens or US citizens or whatever and looking at existence from that position because it's small, it's narrow, it's restricted and essentially it's not the truth. We have to be bigger than our upbringing, bigger than our background, bigger than our families, bigger than our place of birth. We have to grow out of that. Then we can perhaps see and understand and, and, and sense what suffering is and the terror that goes on in people's lives. And that's going to need, which is a, a theme, and a, yeah, a lot of inner work for all of us. It's going to need a, a lot of soul-searching it's going to need a lot of concern about what position and, and where we come from because we're not getting a balanced view and we're not getting a fair view of what is taking place in other parts of the, of the world because the, the weight of it is from a particular position. And other voices do get expressed, but there's such a minority of those other voices different that 90% of it seems to just come from two or three positions. And it doesn't reflect the complexity of it all. In looking, in any kind of um, uh, exploration of embracing and explore, exploring these uh, important uh, issues of life, teachings of non-dual, meaning non-duality, meaning not being caught up one way or the other, gives each and every one of us 
some opportunity to step back and to kind of unpack things. So when you and I, sometimes in our reactivity, in our revenge, in our retaliatory mind, whatever it might be, whoever it might, might be, there's a kind of view and position that we've taken up, which, we've, which we hold to, we get stuck to, and the self, the ego, actually is convinced it knows and it is right. We actually have persuaded ourselves to adopt a view and we live in the duality, in the fragmentation. I am right and you are wrong. And this building of this keeps reifying and keeps solidifying. I am right and you are wrong. And when we do that again and again, we can't get out of it. We can't break free of it. And we forget that the other, whoever the other is in our life, also has the same view. The other person isn't saying who is fighting us or struggling or arguing or taking us to court or whatever it might be. The other person isn't saying, I'm doing it because I am wrong and you are right. (laughs) The other is doing it because that other person or persons or nation or group also has the absolute position of I am right and you are wrong. And through that comes the intensity of the manifestation of the tension and the pressure. The two in conflict have more in common than they realize. The view, they're both right. That's what's in common. And then there comes about the intensity of the struggle. Somehow or other, we've spiritual practice and spiritual depth has got to go deeper. We've got to get out of this fixation of mind, this self-righteousness, this position. And, and unpack it to begin to sense things in terms of causes and conditions. We had the teachers meeting and one of the teaching teachers said that uh, the events of uh, September the 11th were a wake-up call. But tragically, tragically it wasn't a wake-up call. It brought out the worst in people. And we've seen all the ongoing consequences of it all. And it isn't easy for any of us to step back from that and and, and try to sense things in another way in terms of causes and conditions, in terms of the manipulation of power. In, in the stereotypes that take place, backwards and forwards between the various communities and regions in the world. We've got to get underneath it all, dig deep, dig deeper. Sometimes we take the view in the embrace of suffering and the transformation of suffering 
that we can't be at peace until we are allowed to be. Nothing can be resolved unless another or others cooperate with us. And this feeling, this view inside of us, can get very strong and, and, and uh, keep, as it were, being agitated within. You have a conflict with somebody. You're arguing, you're fighting, you're problem, you're, you're experiencing a divorce, separation, or, or whatever. The views and opinions are fly, flying around. There's no peace. It's only heartache and distress. And one keeps wondering, why does the person behave like this? Why is the person acting like this? Why is the person doing this to me? And the very production of those kind of views and feelings and experiences seem to have the power to be able to stop inner peace, transformation and resolution. We have given the authority of our inner life over to another. There's no intelligence in it. To give you an example, a few months ago, a woman on the retreat told me a story of her relationship with her brother. And she said she and her brother had very good, close relationship through childhood into uh, uh, adulthood. They're both in their uh, uh, 30s at this time. And her brother had started up a... He was a counsellor and therapist, etc., and had started up a partner-forming agency, advertising widely, using uh, the website, etc., etc. And Probably it's rather similar here as it is in Europe. But in, in the EU, in the European Union, in any capital city, more than 50% of the population is living alone. In the figures in the cities these days. And so there's a real need and a yearning for friendship, for love and companionship, as one might imagine. And therefore many of these agencies are doing important work. But her brother took a cynical attitude. He'd become very rich. He had hundreds of people. And he, he, said to, he said to her, people going to such agencies, he said, they're mugs. And he, and he said he made his money by deliberately pairing together people who he knew were not compatible so that they would come back and pay again to find another person. <laughs> I mean, the cynical abuse of such a heartfelt and sensitive issue for people in need, for people who are lonely. And he was boasting about how much money he had made and the way that he was making money because individuals were going and meeting one person after another and paying every time, and that's how he made his money. And she said she, was, she couldn't believe her brother could do this. She was so angry uh, with him. And, and they couldn't go and visit the parents together. She couldn't bear him any longer for this uh, 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 treatment of, of uh, the clients. And so this and many other situations 
has an impact on the person's life. And one feels then the only resolution for it is by somehow some form of reconciliation and in her view, understandably and all too human, if he changed, she could be at peace. And there was no signal. They hadn't spoken to each other for a year. They couldn't, uh, had no, absolutely no contact what, whatsoever. And it was constantly on her mind. And on one of the retreats in Europe, it came up very strongly for her, understandably. It's in the variety of situations where the embrace of difficulty, the embrace, embrace of problems. Sometimes you and I are in a situation in life where we can't change somebody. He, she, they may not have the motivation. And our anger and our reaction and our fear doesn't help us. It doesn't help the situation and very easily feeds into it. And therefore, as it were, we've got to, as, as it were, lift our consciousness out of its limitation, out of its dependency on another to give us peace of mind. Work intelligently inwardly to try to transform something inwardly and perhaps out of that we may have a different way of looking outwardly. Because we look at the world through our heart and mind. We have no other instrument to look at it with. In this attending to the inner life, two things can tend to take place. One is the sustaining uh, of the information. And the information, which may come through memory, it may come to us immediately, conversations. It may arise through uh, contact and uh, reading and visual, television, etc., etc. meets with something within us. And quite often, of course, it meets with various feelings. And when this meeting impacts upon uh, each other, how very easily there is some solidification. And we then find ourselves talking from the level of the feelings, the thoughts, and about. And one of the features of our, of our practice is to see whether very directly we can gain access inwardly to the feeling, to what's being actually felt inside of us. And sometimes the locality for that is very immediate. We might be feeling it in the chest. We might be feeling it in the stomach. We might be feeling it in the pits of the abdomen or whatever. And so in letting go just temporarily of all the thing which has riled us up, let us say, all the thing which is agitating us, 
this quiet focusing and turning the attention to where this is being felt inside the body becomes an important feature of our practice. The Buddha uses an important term. He says, Vedana ne Vedana. It means to see the feeling in the feeling. So quite often with our connection with uh, difficult events, we're so preoccupied with the manifestation of our feelings, thoughts, ideas and expressions of it, we forget, and it's the great forgetfulness of human existence, we forget to come back to where is that earliest, immediate feeling coming from within us. And the moment that you and I begin to attend to that, the story, all the information gets less, and the focusing on that particular feeling uh, increases, and we begin to feel inside. What is this feeling? What is this feeling of grief? What is this feeling of separation? What is this feeling of anger, of the desire to hurt, of confusion, of anxiety? What is this feeling that's being experienced somewhere inside of the body? And how will we know if anything within us is changing? The only way we will know in, through that exploration, that means that quiet giving of attention to the inner feeling, is if that feeling is changing, the thinking about the situation changes. We think differently about it. And sometimes there's a kind of, um, uh, how to say, tightness or contraction or holding, which is a form we're hardly aware of. We think we're just talking about something, talking about what we're going through, and we're not aware of how limited and constricted we are. So our willingness to turn the attention to the original feeling inside and just to experience that feeling and learn to stay steady with it. That's our practice. That's our practice. And if that practice had been engaged with men and women in power, there would have been a completely different response the events of September the 11th. That's how important this practice is. Sometimes when we're carried along on the wave of feeling and the kind of identity that you and I can have Uh, with it. We forget the extraordinary significance in, in life of what is called witnessing, to witness. And rather unfortunately, and sometimes in religious circles, witnessing is um, advocating of our belief, religious belief, and we witness for it. The Sanskrit word for witness, a lovely, lovely word, it's sakshi, to be a witness, to, to be a sakshi. 
and the capacity in life of uh, witnessing, and in this case witnessing the direct experiences, is to see what is taking place in the seeing, in the observation, it as just an unfolding process that's going on. Many of you have heard this in this Dharma Hall here, Buddhist tradition and uh, uh, contemporary Western teachings of psychotherapy, etc. But the importance of it genuinely can't be overemphasized. So that in the observation, for a liberation, the Buddha said a key factor in this ability to witness that what's going on in the direct connection of it is not me, these, these are the Buddha's words here, not me, not myself, not who I am. So when something is going on inside, which is difficult, troublesome, problematic, about ourselves, about others, about our governments, about our life or whatever, that movement, that wave that's going on, with the witness, can we witness it? This is not me. This is not myself. This is not who I am. And part of the kind of rebellion that goes on with us when there is difficulty is because somewhere deep inside of us we know this is not me. This is, we know this is not who I am. We know I needn't be like this. So that the, the witness begins to accommodate and begins to embrace what's taking place and the states of mind are only states of mind. They are not a statement about you. They are not about you. They are not who you are. They are simply the conditions arising, generating and producing states of mind and it's the great challenge of a human being to liberate ourselves from that imprisonment. And if we know then, this is not who I am. We're already knocking on the door of an immediate freedom and an immediate capacity to embrace. I had a friend who uh, came to, to see me a few, a, few, a few years ago. And he and his wife had uh, lived together for several years. And I'd actually uh, attended uh, their, their wedding and had, a said, had, had said a few words. And when he was in the middle of a, uh, of a crisis, he said, I said to him, I mean, I say a few things I have to say, but he, he, said, he said to me, Christopher, you said on the day of our marriage, 
it won't last. <laughs> I had no recollection, I'm, I have to say, of, of saying this. I might have said it the day after, but I didn't say it the day. No, no, no. So he and his wife found uh, a home, bought a home. And on the very day that the couple were due to move in, she had a complete change of mind. And she said, I'm not moving in. I'm leaving you. I'm ending the marriage. I don't know why. There is nobody else, but it's over. And he was gobsmacked searching for a home, found a nice cottage, and uh, um, got the mortgage together. And, and no, he, he said, I had no indication, no whisper, no, no, nothing. Went, hadn't argued, hadn't fought. He didn't know what was going, what it was all, all about. But she left, and she wasn't coming back. And she never did. So he came round to the uh, house, and understandably was in a lot of tears and sobbing and a lot of distress and right in the very middle of this anguish and pain he said you know Christopher though I'm going through all of this yet deep down everything is okay this was just a day or two after uh, his wife said, it's over, it's finished. Deep down, everything is okay. And I could see, in the midst of his crying and his sobbing and his head in his hands and the tears flowing out of his uh, uh, eyes and his body shaking, right in the midst of it, it's okay. That's the voice of liberation. That's the voice of understanding. And sometimes, when you and I, we're in the thick of things, turmoil and confusion and uncertain, uncertainty, and everything's go- going on, it's all tumultuous. And sometimes there's a voice inside which says, well, it's not that bad, really. <laughs> and it's that kind of access that kind of contact, that kind of appreciation, which is the liberator. And you and I, we don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it emerges from. We can't manufacture that voice. But there is a certain kind of depth which allows that, and therefore it allows us, even in the great heartaches of existence, and my goodness me, there are many of them, But in the great heartaches of existence, sometimes something else can come through which embraces the suffering. And the spiritual teachings keep pointing to that and reminding us of it as frequently as possible. Sometimes in the inner life, 
in this embrace of suffering. We have a peculiar habit and pattern with each other of validating and reinforcing one feeling and view and slowly or quickly undermining another. Accelerating one and diminishing another. And what I mean by this is sometimes in the inner life there, in the great challenge to embrace the totality of our existence, we're in communication with others. And there is some need, some request. And there's some exploration of that with the other person. Would you, could you, shall we, etc., etc. And that goes on rather, shall we say, socially, affably, uh, caringly, respectfully, sensitively, you know, all those words we love using. And one doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. Not unusual. And then one says, but in those communications of warmth and care and sensitivity, they're heartfelt, they're not superficial, and not being hypocritical or whatever. One is just expressing, trying to get some kind of change done with and put some kindness and care into the expression. And then some frustration builds up. So then one gets mad. One gets angry. And then the other person comes out with one of the biggest mantras in our culture. And the other person says, now I know how you really feel. It's a killer. It immediately dismisses, dismissed all the warm feelings and all the supportive ones. And when we're angry, how easily another person takes that as the yardstick and the measurement of how we really feel. And we grab it. And we hold to that. And we immediately forget the countless expressions of love and warmth and kindness. And we're just left with that. And then that memory becomes the influencing one. Out of that comes all conflict, all violence, all war, all hostility, all resentment, because we've taken up an impression called he or she was angry with me or, or whatever it might be. And we've stuck with it, we've held on to it, and we've obscured the potency of it is obscuring everything else. It's a little bit like if I have my, my hand to my face, right to my eyes here, what the hell can I see? And that's what anger and negative image does. It blocks. You can't see anything else because we're looking, trying to look at others through this. can hardly see. And that's the problematic feature with holding. And it, it disables us. Clinging and grasping and, and 
fixing to a position. So the teachings of, of, of the Buddha are teachings which are encouraging us and re reminding us of the importance of a non-dual position. Not living in the imprisonment of good and evil, but looking at causes and conditions. A reminder to us of the importance of witnessing. A reminder to us of not getting stuck in the storyline, but having access to the bare feeling itself and just feeling that and knowing if something relaxes in that feeling, if something changes in that feeling, we'll think about the situation differently. The unpleasantness may not go away. The unpleasantness for the woman with her brother may not go away. But maybe the madness with him may go. The anger with him may go. And maybe that may provide some other resources for her to look at the situation. So our inner work has an important and very direct immediate influence on how we perceive. And if we can perceive differently, the world will be different. I'd just like to close with one story. We were doing the facilitation groups in, um, in Navalos, West Bank. So some 15 uh, Israelis, invited guests, would come. They would Palestinians. Palestinians would come. The meetings have been going on some, for some years, and also in Ramallah and Gaza. This was before this current nightmare of the occupation. Two guys from Hamas, for the first time, came to the meeting. There were about 30 of us in the room and they sat and listened, watched the Israelis, rather cynical, uh, etc. And uh, one might think sometimes um, the Palestinians and the Israelis would be... But I have to say the, uh, the Israeli friends were just as good as arguing with each other in the meetings as they were with the Palestinians. <laughs> Which I thought was healthy. After a while, we said nothing to the Hamas people. Just let them listen. Didn't ask them anything. They just said they were from Hamas and we didn't say anything. And then they gradually got closer. Moved into the circle. And then offered their views, etc. Then one of them said, he said to me, he said, I was the facilitator for, for the meeting, he said, when one of our people goes into Israel with all the explosive, explosives trapped to his or her chest and kills Israelis, one part of me feels good. What they, have, they, Israel, Israeli army, what they have done to us, therefore we should, we should do to them. 
And then the pictures of the facility, a clinic, which uh, in, in Nablus, there are pictures of the children that have been shot in the inter and killed in the Intifada, etc. But then he said, I have another feeling inside of me. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be going into Israel and kill, killing innocent men, women and children and even and Arabs as well because it's being done on the buses and in the streets and in the shops and in the supermarkets. You, you, you know, I know the stories well enough. Two intense feelings going on inside the same human being. One says, yes, we have the right to do this and the other saying, we shouldn't be, do, we shouldn't be doing this. It has to stop. In a way, that struggle of one young guy, 21 years old, a Hamas activist, is somehow is a kind of focal point for what goes on with human beings. And we, all we could ask, I talked with him at length one-to-one -one later on, all we can ask is that we listen to each other we hear each other and we hope that what is um, deep and beautiful in a human being comes through. And you know, that young man, it did. It did. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.